lame man. Meg was a young lady who just got married and they started immediately trying to have children and they struggled to do so. And while her and her husband were very dedicated Christians, many people praying for them, they did finally have a little girl who was born with spina bifida. And if you're not familiar with that, it's a very serious spinal disease and requires a lot of care as the child grows up and often doesn't make it very long. It caused a strain within their marriage, even though they seemingly received this from the Lord. Everything was going wrong suddenly in their life. Their marriage was in trouble. They were in trouble as a family. And she came to a counselor and saying, what's wrong with me? What can I do about this? Why is God treating me in this manner? Meg was going through spiritual vertigo. And what we said, spiritual vertigo, is a situation in your life where your faith cannot process what you see, hear, and experience. Physical vertigo is when your brain can't process what you're seeing, and therefore you stagger, you, you feel like you're dizzy, the, the whole room is kind of spinning on you, and you're really off balance. And so spiritual vertigo throws you off balance in life. Now, it's not enough that we have to go through our senses, what we see, hear, and experience, but we also discover from last week we have an enemy as well working against us. And hence, this passage of the scripture speaks to that today. I'm not going to look at our, the chapter on spiritual um, warfare necessarily in the book. You can read that for yourselves. Your small groups are studying that. But I want to complement that in some way by applying that to a certain passage in a certain situation that happens in our life. Because as I share with, shared with you last week, the greatest struggles I have and probably the greatest struggles you have in life is our relationship with God. I mean, after all, we, we know that Satan's gonna be against us, the flesh is gonna be against us, the world may not be for us, but God's supposed to be for us, right? I mean, he loves us. He's like a, he's a spiritual father to us. So obviously, he's supposed to treat us well and answer all of our prayers and everything is supposed to go real well for us. And then we look in the Bible and we say, well, I know what the Bible says, I'm gonna claim that promise, and it just doesn't always come to fruition in our own life. Hence, spiritual vertigo, an imbalance in our faith. For example, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says this, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but will with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And you think to yourself, well, there's a way right there, a promise from God where I can overcome temptation in my life. And you discover that that works sometimes and maybe sometimes it doesn't. And so God hears the promise. And so why aren't you delivering in this way? Well, as we open to 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we find a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. And if I could entitle that, if I was gonna preach through this series of messages through the book of 2 Corinthians, I would call it, encourage me. This is a book of great encouragement. Paul had written a previous letter, 1 Corinthians, to the church at Corinth about the, the sin in the camp. He talked about their lack of love for one another in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He talked about their lack of belief and, and how others are getting into and, and, and teaching them false doctrine. And they, they sort of took it wrong. Many of them took it wrong. And he was discovering that maybe he didn't have the relationship with them 
that he thought he had. So he wrote back a second letter and also challenging them, which he did in, in chapter eight and nine, about their giving and giving to the poor, particularly in uh, offering to Jerusalem. But couched in all this, he was encouraging them to go on with the Lord. And in this passage, he shows us that he very much identifies with the fact of what they were going through and what you and I go through were in, involved in spiritual warfare. In fact, look at this, these verses. Verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war. Now notice the language here. We're not raging, waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are the divine power to destroy strongholds. Key word. Key word that we'll be coming back to. Strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Well, we look at this and we understand there's some challenges here. And one of the things he's talking about here, and the main thing, is strongholds in our life. What is that exactly? Who is this devil? Who, who is the one really tempting us? Is it all of us? You know, is it all about us and the flesh and our weaknesses? Or is there something else behind the scenes. I want to look at three things in this passage today. Number one, the believer's walk reveals a conflict. Secondly, the believer's warfare describes the battle. And thirdly, the believer's weapons lead to victory. And so if you're taking notes, those are the three main points. Now you can go to sleep, you know, right? The believer's walk. No, please don't do that. This is a very important <laughs> message to many, many people here. So please listen up and take good notes. The believer's walk reveals a conflict. Notice, I want you to notice the, the wording again. In verse 3, it says, the war according to the flesh. Verse 4, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. To destroy strongholds. Verse 5, we destroy arguments. Everything here is language of great battle and great conflict. Now, oftentimes when we become a Christian, we think that, though the Christian life is a life of ease, comfort, and pleasure. Man, once you get saved, it's all about peace. Once you get saved, it's all about hope. It's all about love. You never have any problems. I mean, the pastor told me so, right? Well, this pastor didn't tell you that. But we think to ourselves, it's just a matter of ease, comfort, and pleasure. But let me put it to you this way. When you and I do not know the Lord, we have one nature. And that one nature drives us in the wrong direction. It, our, our thought life, our worldview, everything about it, is really what we'd call from a lost person's perspective and lost according to the, the scriptural language. Someone who has one nature and does not have really the nature of God. It's called the human nature, but it's also called in the Bible a sinful nature. Once you and I receive Jesus into our heart, we have two natures. The Holy Spirit of God has come in to ignite our old dead spirit within us, and now we have two natures, and it's like the good dog and the bad dog fighting together and fighting for that territory in our life. We have the flesh, the world feeding us and often driving us into sin. And though it's our choice, driving us there. But there's a conflict. There's a guilt there. There's a need for forgiveness there. And there's conflict that goes on. Galatians says, but I, but I walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So here we find the uh, implication of conflict. Be sober, be watchful, for your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We can find also there an enemy that we talked about last week when we looked at the story of Job, an enemy that's going against us. So who is this enemy? 
Well, let's describe him a little bit. He's called Satan. He's called the devil, the deceiver in the Bible. Isaiah 14 tells us a, a little bit about his origin, at least of what he was and where he came from. How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, talking about Satan? Have you cut down to the ground who had laid the nations low? You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud, clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Satan was a very powerful, very important angel in heaven. And when he fell, wanting to be God, the God of his own life, and also the God of a lot of other people's lives, when he fell, one-third of the angels fell with him. Now you're asking me the question. You know, you may not know me, but maybe you do know me a little bit. And you say, Pastor, I thought you were educated. My goodness, do you believe in a personal devil? I mean, that's kind of like a fairy tale type of thing. Very simplistic. I mean, where'd you get your doctrine? You know, Susie Q Bible Institute by mail or something? No, I do have the education. But let me just share with you and challenge you just for a moment. To think with me just for a moment. Is it not believing in something behind the scenes rather simplistic? To think about all the evil in the world being just according to our own decisions. Thinking about the violence in our world, the killings on the street, the gang violence, the, the persecution of Christians all around the world being beheaded and killed merely because they would not deny Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. How in the world can we say this is just all of our own doing? Andrew DeBlanco, in the book Death of Satan, as he wrote a book as an atheist, he was concerned because he'd come to the place in his life where he could not logically and simply explain evil in the world based upon our own evil desires and choices alone. And he came to the conclusion there has to be something else behind it all. Somebody says, well, I, you know, I believe in the words of Jesus and that's about it. Well, that would be a mistake because all the Bible is the word of God. All of it is the words of Jesus because Jesus is God and God inspired it all. But listen to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 10. He says, and he said to his disciples, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Listen, dear friends, if Jesus is saying, I believe in the devil, he was even tempted in the wilderness by the devil, then we would be a greatly amiss and greatly operating at the side of falsehood and lies if we did not believe in him ourselves. Well, what is he all about? Well, I can't tell you everything about the devil because I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us everything. But the word devil itself comes from a Greek word meaning to lie, to deceive. So above everything else, he is a deceiver. Notice in the book of Genesis when he came before Eve to tempt her. Eve said, look, the same day we eat of this fruit, we are going to die. Satan says, you're not going to die. Well, they did die spiritually. You're not going to die. In fact, God knows if you eat of this fruit, he knows you're going to be just like him, a lie. Now, he comes to Jesus in the wilderness, tempted him three times, filled with lies. What does he do to us today? Filling our hearts and our lives with lies. I want you to notice something, another key word in this passage in verse 5. He says, destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. How do you do that? That word arguments, by the way, comes from a Greek word meaning imaginations. 
And now all imagination is not bad. And that's, what, that, that's not what they're saying. But we get our imaginations and our mind away from the word of God, imagining things that are simply not there. And he's saying what? The battlefield of Satan is the mind. Now you've seen a lot of movies. Maybe you've read some in the book about demon possession and how people cut themselves and all that. And, uh, you know, monsters maybe in the graveyard. But 99.9% of what we go through with the devil is really between the ears. It's in the mind. Because when you control the thoughts of someone, you control their actions. You control their lives. And so Satan continues to lie. Why? Because he wants to control us. Why do you lie to someone? You lie to someone because you want to be in control. You give them false uh, falsehoods and give them lies in order to manipulate them in some way, in order to have power over them, Satan does the same thing to us. Now, why does he do that? Well, he has really two things in mind. One, he wants to keep uh, people that don't know Christ exactly in that position. And he wants to keep the people who, or get the people who know Christ to get them in a defeated position. And so he darkens the mind of the unbeliever, defiles the mind of the believer, Darkening the mind. Listen to this verse. This is how powerful he can be. In their case, the God of this world, meaning Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of glory of Christ, who is in the image of God. He's allowed to blind the minds of those who will not believe. God puts some light in someone's heart. They just know there's a God somewhere. They just know there's something else out there. They can't explain why. It's not that they go through the Bible with all kinds of proofs and apologetics. They just, they just know because God has placed it in their heart according to Romans chapter 1. They reject that. Or they hear some sermons. They reject those. They read the Bible. They reject that. Satan then is allowed, allowed to come in and give the person exactly what they want, a blindness to God. Then he defiles the mind of the believer. He tries. Here's his goal. He's trying to get us to worship anything, anything but God. That's his goal for our life. Any idol will do. It could be something horrible. It could be something great. It could be a gift from God. But anything in your life, in order to get you and I to worship something besides him. A story is told, I read this past week, about a counselor meeting with a couple. And their son had gone off the rails. He had gone off into the world, and they were extremely brokenhearted about the whole thing. The man was very disappointed. He was hurt. The woman's life, it just seems like, was destroyed. And the man said to the counselor, he said, look, you've got to help my wife. I'm going through a lot. I'm disappointed in my son, but her world's falling apart. You've got to help her. And he turned to him and he said, well, after talking to you, for just a few sessions, I happen to know why her life's falling apart and yours not. And he said, why is that? He said, you're a businessman. He said, yes, I am. And he said, your life is wrapped around your business. That is the number one thing in your life. If your business were to fail, your life would fall apart. Her life is wrapped around her son. Her number one thing in life has fallen. Therefore, her life is crumbling. What was that counselor saying? He's saying, look, mister, your God is your business. It's not that you don't love your son, but you, maybe you even love him in the proper way, but you love your son, but your God is your business. If your business fails, you feel like life has failed. 
Her God is her son. Therefore, her God has fallen and her life is just being crushed. Satan is willing to get us even to worship the good things, the things that we ought to love in this life. Remember the message we preached last week about Job. Job was allowed to be torn apart, his life torn apart by Satan. But here's what we said. God allowed Satan to accomplish what Satan did not want to accomplish and to accomplish what God wanted to accomplish in Job's life. And that was to show God, show Job that God was not on the throne of his life. He was almost there. He was competing, but he wasn't there. He was in transition. And at the end of the book, at least for that moment in time, Job put God back on the throne of his life. God used Satan, you might say, in order to accomplish that. Romans says this, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. You see, our spiritual vertigo doesn't come from the physical. It comes from the mind and what's going on. So let's look at the believer's warfare. What does it describe here? It describes the battle that's going on. Verse 4, it says, For the weapons of the warfare are not of the flesh, but of divine power of God to destroy strongholds. What is a stronghold in our life? A stronghold is a fortress. It's a beachhead where Satan has gained victory after victory after victory in our lives, and he knows he can always come back to that kind of victory. It could be doubt in your life. Right now, you're going through all kinds of doubts because maybe God's not answering your prayers, and he knows now he has at least a toehold in your life about doubt. It could be fears in your life, but it also could be things like your prayer life. Let me, let me give you some examples of strongholds. Addictions. Addictions. I was reading an article uh, a couple of weeks ago. Secular article comes out of a kind of a medical magazine, and it looked at the, 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 uh, the drugs that are most addicting in America, just in America. The number one thing, of course, was heroin, pretty much 100%, I guess, addiction, even though they didn't come right out and say that. The next thing on the list was barbiturates, sleeping pills, of the, and then nicotine. And if any of you ever smoked, maybe you're wondering why that's not number one. But nicotine, very, very addictive. Number four, cocaine. 24% that said of the people who tried cocaine get addicted to it. Alcohol was the fifth one. 22% of the people who take their first drink get addicted to it. Now, I know what you're thinking to yourself. You're thinking, how can you call that demonic or how can you call that spiritual warfare when people are putting a substance within them? And it's true. So let me give you another example. What about the addiction of gambling? What about pornography? You look at gambling you're not, you're, and pornography. You're not putting anything into your vein. You're not drinking anything. You're not smoking anything. It has nothing to do with the physical. There's something about that has drawn you to something that has gotten a stronghold maybe in your life or a person's life that you know. Here's a person that goes in for a, a gambling. They're just passing through one of those casinos on the ship, you know? And they're thinking, you know, I've never tried this before. I think I'll just try this machine. And they put some coins in there. Listen, you know, you've been on cruises before where you have to pass through those casinos all the time to get to one place to another. And the same people are sitting in there pouring hundreds and even thousands of dollars on the table in the slot machines. Why? 
Well, they won. Man, you go, man, I won. What a thrill. I gambled and I won. It's a toehold. The next day, they can't, they're sleeping on it. They think, I can't wait to go back. I'm going to try this again. So they go back the next day and the next day and the next day. And they get off the ship and they keep thinking about, where can I go now to really start gambling a little bit? And they go a little bit more and it's a toehold to what Ephesians calls a, uh, a foothold in their life. A little bit stronger in their life. And suddenly it takes over their life. Did you know that you can never, ever, ever have enough money, ever, if you have a gambling problem? You're one bet away from being totally broke. You can have a billion dollars, one billion dollar bet. It's all gone. What about pornography? What, what about 12% of the internet sites are pornographic sites? 2.4 million visitors per hour to pornographic sites. 40 million people a day go on a website that's pornographic. So you look, and then all of a sudden there's a toehold, and then there's a foothold, and then there's a stronghold in your life. How bad is it? Well, I, one pastor was telling the story about how his church, they were about 3,000 people on a Sunday, and um, he said they have this uh, thing on their Wi-Fi, as we do, that blocks things. You can't go to certain sites without blocking them. Well, their computer registers every block. And they discover that on the average Sunday, they block 40 people from going on a, on a pornographic website in their church while the service is going on. What are people saying? Look, I know I'm going to get caught, but it, it doesn't matter. I've got to have it. I know that this is going to ruin my life. This drug is going to ruin my life. And by the way, even with heroin, in my research at least, even in heroin, it takes about three days, three or four days to get it out of your physical system. Everything else is mental. And what I'm saying to you today is a lot of that mental stuff that we find in addictions is nothing more than spiritual warfare. It's like the story of the eagle flying over the river and he sees this carcass, this deer uh, frozen in the river, going down this frozen river and he immediately leaps upon it and begins to feast and his talons go deep within the carcass of the deer. And he knows there's a waterfall coming on, but it doesn't matter. He's going to do just like he's done so many times before. Right at the last moment, on the last bite, he's going to let go and fly away to safety. So he was going down the river, and suddenly the waterfall begins to come. He feels it coming. He begins to take one bite, then let go, and he's going to fly away. But the problem was his talons had frozen into the deer. And he went off into the waterfall to his death. That's what happens to us with strongholds in our life. We think, oh, I can give it up anytime I want. I can do this, I can do that. No, it, it is there. And many people, you say, well, I, I'm, not, I'm not involved in any of that. What about, what about doubt? What about discouragement in your life? And Satan now has a stronghold of that in your life. And you're hiding it. And not sharing it with anyone. And you're a little bit bitter, perhaps, against God. And one day that's going to come fruition and you're going to say, I'm not going to have anything more to do with God anymore. Look what he's done or failed to do for my life. Strongholds in our life. 
Where, where does it begin? Well, it begins at a point of weakness. Satan's going to tempt and tempt and tempt and tempt until he finds the weakness in your life, the, the sore spot in your life. It could be like in, the, in 1 Corinthians, where it was lust and greed. It could be something else that we've already mentioned today. Then it establishes itself in a lack of repentance. And that is the point. You see, you and I, we all know that we, we don't stay away from sin. We know that we do something wrong. And so what do we need to do? We need to immediately repent of it. Otherwise, a toehold is going to start in our life. The problem is, it's very difficult to repent of something when you want to do it again. When you're planning on doing it again. When you, you think, it's just not that bad. It's like I, Oscar Wilde <clears throat> and his famous prose where he says, I've decided in my life, i decided in my life to make pleasure my God. And have all kinds of pleasures in my life until one day I was no longer the captain of my own soul. Pleasure had him. Recently, in a very uh, well-known Christian university, we see someone that has fallen from that. And we find out now from the background that it didn't happen overnight. A stronghold was developed many, many years before. It begins at the point of weakness. It establishes itself in the point of a lack of repentance. And we begin to rationalize it until finally we receive it as part of our life. It's just compartmentalizing our life. Okay, yeah, I'm doing this and I'm just, oh well, you know, I, I guess that's just, I, I don't think that's too bad. And when it's ever pointed out to us or when it is that it is bad, we think, oh, I guess it was. It's like we blinded our minds to that. So we compartmentalize our life and we just say, look, you know, I'm doing so many good things for God. Why can't I just have this one little room to myself? In this book, Beneath the Surface, Bob Record tells a story. I can remember waiting on a phone as I listened to the ringing of the other end of the line. I dreaded the moment Stan would answer. Stan had been a friend for years. We'd spoken together on national programs, traveled together, had coffee and meals together, laughed together, prayed together, shared openly about our life together. So I thought, at least, I just learned that he had discovered uh, an ongoing affair in his life. His wife walked away, and being a minister, Stan was relieved of his position. When finally I heard a voice at the other end, I could only blurt out, how could you do it? Didn't you realize what was happening? Weren't there alarms going off at least when the affair was in danger of beginning? His response reminded me of the hush in a funeral home when someone has died. After that, what seemed to be in an, uh, a deafening silence for eternity, he hesitantly responded, yes, Bob, there were warnings. I heard the alarms of my conscience and God's word clanging within my life. I decided to disconnect the wires. Making a decision, a stronghold that says so bad that I'm willing to go on pornography in church knowing that somebody may be looking over my shoulder or go somewhere where I think my wife or even husband is going to catch me because I just got to have it. I decided to disconnect the wires. Spiritual warfare, strongholds. So how do we get out of this? The believer's weapons lead to victory. Notice it says, for the weapons of our warfare, they're not of the flesh, they're of God. 
They're of God. Now, I'm not going to go over this, this uh, morning all the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. I do that in the book. I define each one of them, and I go over exactly which one uh, is what. But I'm going to apply that for just a moment in this sense of strongholds. One, we need to refocus our mind in prayer. Why? Why do we need to do this? Notice what it says in Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Then he says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to the end that Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints. Here's the problem with repentance. Second Timothy tells us, God, that, this is the prayer, God may grant, grant, say that word with me, grant, grant say it again, grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. It seems like repentance is a gift here. Something we receive, something we do, but something that God grants. Difficult to get that granting of repentance when you don't want it. You say, well, no, no, pastor, really, this sermon's uh, awakened me. Yeah, okay, maybe it woke you up, but are you getting up? You know, you have somebody caught at work in pornography, it, it, it really woke them up. But did they get up? You have somebody else that gets caught, maybe downtown buying drugs. Please arrest them, put them in jail. Now they're found out. They, they wake up, but do, do they get up? You know, there's a difference between that, you know? You wake up in the morning, that alarm goes off. What do you do? You either get up or you hit the snooze button, right? Hit that little snooze button. There's people here that are watching by, um, by video, online, Facebook. They, they intended to come this morning, and the alarm went off, and they woke up, but they didn't get up. And so it's still there. And listen, my wife will tell you, she gets so tired of that nine-minute button. See, mine's not 10 minutes, it's nine minutes, so I get to hit it more, more than once. Now, here's the, here's the reason you and I get up out of bed, even when we're still sleepy. We wake up and we get out of bed because it's more important to keep your job than it is to get a few more minutes sleep. So you get up because you realize the importance of it all. That only comes through prayer. You've got to get with God and say, and it takes more than one sermon. It takes more than one moment. You've got to get with God and say, God, I, I don't want to give this up, if that's the case. It's got a hold of my life, God. You've got to do something. You've got to change the desires of my heart. Then you can repent. You re refocus your mind, but then you repent of your sin. And to do that, you've got to admit that it's in your life. What is it in your life? Let me give you five seconds to name it. What is it? Can you name it? Can you admit it? This is a stronghold in my life. Five seconds. You admit it. But then you agree with God about its impact on your life. And that's where we fall short. I fall short, you fall short. We think, okay, everybody's doing this. I mean, you know, a lot of people are on drugs. You know, a lot of people doubt God. 
lot of people don't pray like they should. A lot of people don't read the Bible like they should. It's just, you know, it's, it's just sin, and we all sin, right? So what kind of impact could this possibly have? Well, I tell you what the impact it had. On Jesus, he died for it. He died for every one of those sins. Doug Osborne and I were talking over lunch this past week, and we were talking about different beliefs in the church today. And he said, you know, a lot of people are, are believing in annihilation of hell. They don't, they don't believe in hell anymore. They just believe when you die, you die. Now, if you die and go to heaven, you're a Christian, you go to heaven. But if you don't, you just die. And we talked about and lamented the fact that we hate that there is a hell explained in the Bible. We, we don't like that. We accept that. But we don't understand that. But he said this. And it was very insightful. That's why I believe Doug maybe got it from somebody else. I don't know. (laughs) Because it was brilliant. Now, he's a brilliant guy. And he said this. He said what he told one of his uh, parishioners was, he said, hell's for eternity because that's how long it takes to pay for your sin. It's never paid for. Never thought about it in that way. That's the impact. Unless you come to the cross, unless you receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord, unless his blood cleanses you from that sin, it takes an eternity to pay for one sin. What impact is it going to have in your life when people find out about what's going on? He said, well, nobody's ever going to find out. They already know. He said, no, they don't know. They know. No, they don't know. No, they're guessing. They have no idea what it is, but they know something's wrong because you can't have a stronghold in your life without it affecting your disposition, without affecting your relationships around you. You just can't. And so people know. They just don't know what it is yet. But what happens if they found out? God already knows. That's the impact And then you have to abandon the last thing. You really have to abandon your emotional attachment. I remember my first church, we had this guy with a wonderful testimony. Alcoholism came out of that. But I told him one day, I said, look, you've got to watch yourself. Every time you talk about it, you smile and you laugh about the good old days. You're emotionally attached to your old life. And he went back to it. What we're, ta- what we're talking about, emotional attachment. I need it. I need it in my life. It's my God. I depend on it for, for joy, for happiness, for comfort. It's the place, it's my go-to place for peace. That's where I go to, to block out the rest of the world. And I go to that one place. And you begin to live for it. You've got to abandon. You can say, God, I want you back on the throne of my life, not that thing in my life. Finally, I know I'm giving you a lot of points and subpoints, And so in closing, you refocus your mind in prayer, repent of your sin for freedom, and then renew your mind with truth. It says here in the scripture, he says, destroy arguments, verse five, and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. How do you do that? You go back to the word of God. Lofty opinions against the knowledge is, is against the word of God. You replace the lies of Satan with the truth. The truth of God's word. It says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is 
the Word of God. You know, the Bible says we have the mind of Christ. How do we have the mind of Christ? The Word of God. That is the truth for us, saturating our mind, praying, releasing, repenting of that sin in our life, that stronghold, and refocusing and renewing our mind with the truth. You know, here's the thing, and here's the heartbreaking thing to the whole, the whole scenario here in spiritual warfare. We are fighting a battle that, in a sense, has already been won. That's right. Stories told of a lady who was a true story. She put her, uh, a room in her home up for rent. She needed the money, and this man rented it, and she soon found out it was a bad mistake, and she needed him out. And she told him he's going to have to leave. He says, no, I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. I'm here. I'm here to stay. She kept begging him to leave. She got neighbors to talk to him. Nothing worked. Finally, she went to a lawyer, got a court order for him to leave. And even then, with a piece of paper in his hand, he argued and argued with her and threatened her. But he had to leave. Why? Because he had no legal standing in that place. Listen, dear friend. Satan doesn't own you. He doesn't own me. You have been bought with a price. The precious blood of Jesus Christ. And because of that, you and I have an inheritance that we can only imagine, not only in heaven, but right here on earth, if we follow Christ, if we put our faith and love and trust in him, not trusting in the pleasures of life, not trusting in the things of life, not trusting in the gifts of life, but trusting just in him. You have that. Bought with the price. Satan has no legal standing over you. Now this morning, I want to challenge every Christian. Just think about what is the stronghold? Is there a stronghold in my life? Not, if not, what about a foothold? What about a toehold? What is Satan doing in my life to defeat my life? And then go to God in repentance over that. Pray for it. Pray for the desire for repentance. Release that emotional attachment. But I share with you here today that if you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you only have that one nature, and that one nature is taking you down the wrong road. And the only way for you to get to heaven, the only way for you to have that relationship with God that is victorious is to trust him as your personal Savior and Lord. And if you've never made that decision, I want to invite you to do that right now. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I want to pray a prayer with you right now, and I'll pray it out loud. You can pray it out loud, especially if you're at home, or you can pray it silently if you're here today. And it goes like this. Lord God, thank you for loving me. Thank you that you bought me with a price of the precious blood of Jesus on the cross. You paid for my sins. They're no more. They're as far as the east is from the west. They've been buried in the, the deepest ocean. So God, I want to live that way. I want to live in victory in you. And so I receive that forgiveness from the cross. I invite Jesus to come into my heart and life. Help me to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.